Right, before we get into the lesson, where's my drawing raffle thing? It's right behind me. Yes, it is. Thank you. <laughs> I knew I placed it somewhere. Um, can I get a volunteer to draw a name? Put the pressure on. I think I saw Bella's hand go up first. All right, if you draw your own name, we have to redraw. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Okay, let's see who it is. Drum roll, unfold, unfold. It is Ayla. Ayla, you get the last gift card to Fair Coffee. There you go. All right, thank you guys for filling those out. Um, yeah, hopefully um, those serve you well. And uh, we'll touch base back with you on those surveys in a couple of weeks. Um, to start off our study of Esther, we need to kind of jump right in and set the setting of the scene. We need to talk about time period and stuff like that because if we don't do that, it'd be like if you wanted to watch all the Star Wars movies. Who in here has seen all Star all Star some Star Wars fans? I, I I think I've seen them all. I don't remember them all. But it'd be like if you wanted to watch the entire movie franchise of Star Wars, was there like nine of them now or something like that? Like full, the movies anyways? And you, and you started with episode seven, The Force Awakens. Without watching any of the other movies, you'd get kind of lost. You would miss some references. You wouldn't get a lot of the things. It'd also maybe be like if you started reading the Chronicles of Narnia. Who in here has read Chronicles of Narnia? Maybe a few. Yes, they're a good book series. Or seen some of the movies. It'd be as if you started reading right in the middle of the book series instead of starting at the beginning. If we just just jumped right in and started reading Esther, the first chapter, first verse, without any context, uh, things would be kind of confusing and things will be missed while reading and studying Esther. So with that, I'm going to give you a quick recap of some Old Testament storyline leading up to Esther. So first, we have the United Kingdom of Israel Hopefully all of you have heard of Israel in the Bible. Israel is God's chosen people. And uh, there's a kingdom there. Um, who remembers the first king of Israel? Anybody? Joah. King Saul. After a large group, you can get a free snack from the hype snack bar, okay? Um, who's after Saul? What happened? Who's after Saul? Nathan? David? Okay. You can also get something after hype. And then who was David's son that took over, that kind of served God, but kind of didn't? It was like halfway. Elena? Solomon. Yes, you too, if you want to get a snack afterwards, you can. Okay, so you had a United Kingdom. You had Saul, David, Solomon. And then after Solomon, it divides. It splits. You have the northern kingdom called Israel. And then you have the southern kingdom called Judah. Now, the northern kingdom lasts until about 722 B.C. They get taken away by the Assyrians. Now, Assyria that came in and took Israel gets overtaken by Babylon in 612 B.C. And then the southern kingdom, uh, they get taken into captivity by the Babylonians, the ones who overtook the Assyrians. And then after a while, Babylon falls to Persia while Israel and Judah are in exile. Now, while both groups are in exile, Persia is in control. There's a king called King Cyrus. And King Cyrus allows Jews to return to their homeland, to Jerusalem, at 538 B.C. 
Now, some people, uh, they returned, and some people stayed in Persia instead of going back to Jerusalem. Okay? So some people came back, some people stayed. A lot of the people actually stayed in Persia. Now, in the grand scheme of things of the entire gospel, the Bible, this all happens about 400 years before Jesus. So, think about how old the U.S. is. Roughly 250, not quite 250 years old, a little less than 250 years old. Take that, add 150 years, and that's the length between Jesus and when this takes place in the Old Testament. Okay? Now, the setting of the book of Esther takes place in Persia when the Jew, some of the Jewish people have decided to stay instead of returning to Jerusalem. Okay? So Esther takes place in Persia. And technically the capital city of Susa that we're going to get into in chapter 1 tonight. It's about people who are living in a foreign land. It's not their homeland. Their homeland is Judea, Judah, Israel, and the city of Jerusalem but they've been taken away, and they've decided not to return. Okay, now we know a little bit behind Esther. So let's read. Let's open up our scripture notebooks. And remember, as always, circle or underline things that stick out to you or that you have questions about. If you have questions about them, uh, you can ask your small group leader and your small groups later tonight, and they'll do their best to answer. And any unanswered questions, we will address later. Okay, so underline, circle anything that you find interesting that sticks out to you or that you have questions about. So let's read Esther chapter 1 verses 1 and we're going to break at 12. So we're just going to read the first 12 verses right now. These events took place during the days of Ahazur. I had this. It's Ahazuerus, Ahazuerus, who ruled 127 provinces from India to Kush. In those days, King Ahasuerus reigned from his royal throne in the fortress at Susa, which is in Persia. He held a feast in the third year of his reign for all of his officials and staff, the army of Persia and Media, and the nobles and officials from the provinces. He displayed the glorious wealth of his kingdom and magnificent splendor of, its, of his greatness for a total of 180 days. At the end of this time, the king held a week-long banquet in the garden courtyard of the royal palace for all the people, from the greatest to the least, who were present in the fortress of Susa. White and blue linen hangings were fastened with fine white and purple linen cords to silver rods on marble columns. Gold and silver couches were arranged on a mosaic pavement of red feltspar marble and mother-of-pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in an array of gold goblets, each with a different design. Royal wine flowed freely. According to the king's bounty, the drinking was according to the royal decree. There was no restrictions. The king had ordered every wine steward in his household to serve whatever each person wanted. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women of King Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus palace. On the seventh day, when the king was feeling good from the wine, Ahasuerus commanded all the names, Mahuman, Bisla, Harbana, Bigtha, 
Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who personally served him to bring Queen Vashti before him with her royal crown. He wanted to show off her beauty to the people and the officials because she was very beautiful. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command that was delivered by his eunuchs. The king became furious, and his anger burned within him. Okay, we're going to pause there for a moment. Because we need to take a break. There's a lot going on, so we need to ask the question, what is going on? So I'm just going to summarize this quick, so hopefully this makes sense. Okay, it's the third year of this king's reign, King Ahasuerus. I'm still pronouncing it wrong, I feel like. He hosts a feast for his officials, his staff, and nobles from all 120 provinces that he ruled over, plus people from his army. So it'd be like if the President of the United States took all the governors of the U.S., so from all 50 states, uh, people who served in Congress, House of Representatives, all those people, a bunch of people, plus, you know, leaders from the army and all the generals, colonels, all, all the people uh, who help lead the army. And it's as if he took everyone in those positions around the U.S. and had a feast. And I want you to, um, and, and so right away we see this in verse 4. And I want you to actually underline verse 4 if you haven't already Underline verse 4 because it's here that we see the king is all about making himself look good in the eyes of others. Verse 4 is, when we read it, we read it and we're like, wow. He displayed the wealth of his kingdom for 180 days. So it's like, was it a 180-day party? Because it seems like nothing would get done because that's like a half a year and you think the city would run amok and be chaotic if you had a bunch of people drinking for 180 days. It'd be kind of crazy. I, I think it's best understood that he was just showing off his wealth rather than the party lasting 180 days. I think there was a feast beginning, and then we'll see that there's a feast at the end. But in this 180-day range, he's just showing off his kingdom to others who come in. People from around the rule of Persia, all 127 provinces are coming in and or uh, seeing the wealth of his fortress at Susa for 180 days. And then at the end, the king shows off um, his wealth again as he hosts another feast that is a week long. How many of you had a birthday party? Like where people came, right? He had a birthday party. Can you imagine that on a way bigger scale, like in the White House of the U.S.? And that party lasts for seven days. That's a heck of a party. That's a crazy party. I might take a nap during that party. I don't know if I could go seven days straight, you know, with a bunch of people. But this this happens, a feast, a week-long feast. And this is specifically just for all the people who lived in the city of Susa. So in this second feast, you have all the people inside Susa, inside the capital city of Persia. And what does the king say? He orders them, encourages them to get drunk on as much wine as they want. We see this in verse 8. So if you haven't already underlined, underline verse 8. It says, verse 8 says, The drinking was ordered to the royal decree. There are no restrictions. The king had ordered every wine steward in his household to serve whatever each person wanted. We see here that the king wanted the people to have a focus on themselves and whatever made them feel, feel good. At the same time, 
that this king is hosting this second banquet feast for a week long. We also see that the queen, second character in our story, right off the bat, the queen is also hosting a feast for the women in the palace. And toward the end of the second feast of the seven days of people drinking crazy amounts of wine, the king, who is drunk on wine at this point in time, commands that the queen would be brought to his feast to show off, again, something of his possession, show off her beauty, something that is within his palace. Again, we see the king is all about showing off and making himself look good in the eyes of others. But the queen, she's in the middle of her own party that she is orchestrated, that she is in charge of, and she refuses to obey the king. She refuses to come to the king's party. And the king is furious, and it says his anger burned within him meaning he felt angry all the time, partly because of how the queen humiliated him in front of his officials. So, so far in our story, in the short couple 12 verses that we just read, we see that this king of Persia, King Ahasuerus, is all about himself and not concerned at all about worshiping the true God. So let's see what the king does next as we continue verse 13 through 22. So let's pick it back up. Scripture notebooks, chapter 1, verse 13. The king consulted the wise men who understood the times for it was his normal procedure to confer with experts in law and justice. The most trusted ones were Karshena, Shathar, Admatha, Tarshish, Miraz, Mersena, and Mamukin. They were the seven officials of Persia and Media who had personal access to the king and who occupied, occupied the highest positions in the kingdom. The king asked, according to the law, what should be done with Queen Vashti since she refused to obey the king's Ahasuerus' uh, command that was delivered by the eunuchs? Mamukin said in the presence of the king and his officials, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but all the officials and the peoples who are in every one of the king." Ahasuerus's provinces, for the queen's actions will become public knowledge to all the women and cause them to despise their husbands and say, King Ahasuerus ordered Queen Vashti brought before him, but she did not come. Before the day is over, the noble women of Persia and Media will hear about the queen's act, will say the same thing to all the king's officials, resulting in more contempt and fury. If it meets the king's approval, verse 19, he should personally issue a royal decree, let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it cannot be revoked. Vashti is not to enter the enter King Ahasuerus' presence, and her royal position is to be given to another woman who is more worthy than she. The decree the king issues will be heard throughout his vast kingdom, so all women will honor their husbands from the greatest to the least. The king and his counselors approved the proposal and followed Mamukin's advice. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to each province in his own script, and to each ethnic group in its own language, that every man should be the master of his own house and speak in the language of his own people. Okay, again, what is going on in the second half of Esther chapter 1? First, the king, he gets some advice from some of his wise men about what to do about Queen Vashti. If you haven't already... Underline verse 17 through 18. It talks about how um, the king and his men 
their response is based out of fear. Did you catch that? Verse 17, 18. How they respond to the situation is purely based out of fear. Fear of women dishonoring their husbands. And we see in this passage, the second half, that ultimately the king decided to remove Queen Vashti from being queen and sent word to all the provinces in his kingdom that every man should be master of his own house. Which is kind of an odd way to say things. But I think it shows us something about the king. Because throughout this whole chapter, we, s- we learn a lot about King Ahasuerus' life and who he is. We see the king being focused on himself and what others think of him. And he has no regard or thought about worshiping the one true God. See, we see this man-centered focus of the king in five different ways in Esther chapter 1. First, we see it as he shows off his wealth in the early parts of Esther 1. The king, instead of bringing glory to God for what has been given to him and rightly showing that God is, uh, and giving glory to God and praising God for the blessings that God has shown him, he takes, uh, he takes credit He glorifies himself instead of giving glory to God. We see that in verse 4. The second thing we see is that he encourages others to get drunk. He encourages others to have a focus on themselves to find satisfaction in other things rather than God. He tells people, drink as much as you want. Get drunk. It's okay. He says, find satisfaction in something other than God. We see that in verse 8. The third thing we see that the king having a man-centered focus is that he shows off his wife. The king brings attention to something that is created instead of the creator. The king views Vashti as someone he owns and can show off as a possession of his. Instead of seeing his wife as an image bearer of God and someone to respect and honor he uses his wife for his own glory. He tries to gain attention from his officials by bringing his own wife into his party. Again, it's all about him. It's all about focused on him, nothing about others or nothing about glorifying God, all about him. The fourth way we see this is the fear of people. The king is afraid about what people in his kingdom will think of him. Instead of being focused on how God views him, He values the opinions of people more than he values the truth about who God is and who we are as humans. We see this in verses 15 through 21. And then the last thing we see is that the king desires to be served. We see this as the the king views men as masters of their own household. That they could say whatever they wanted to, treat their wives however they wanted to. And this is an attitude of absolute authority. It's really an attitude of wanting to be served instead of serving others, instead of respecting others, instead of caring for others as image bearers of God, instead of loving others as God has loved us. There's this desire to only be served, to be on top, to never be humble and never to serve someone else. And with all of this going on in Persia, 
And with this being the attitude of the king who leads this country, who leads this regime, and who leads these, these people who live in the capital city of Susa, with all these things going on, while Jewish people who worship God live in this place, the question must be asked in the book of Esther. Can God still be active in Persia? Can God still be active in a place where the majority of people don't worship him? The majority of people don't think about him or how to live a life that glorifies him. Can God still be active in a place like that in Persia? Same, this is the very question that many Jewish people were asking themselves while they were in exile, while they were away from Jerusalem, away from the place where God's temple was, where they worshipped God. And it's a question that is at the heart of this book that the author is writing. And if you stick around this semester, you'll notice something really profound in this book of Esther that, that God is never actually mentioned. God is never referenced once. It's as if the author of Esther is wanting us to ask this question and then come to a conclusion at the end of the book. Can God still be active in a place like Persia? And the answer is yes. God is sovereign. God is in control of everything. Even a situation that seems dark, sinful, hopeless. God is at work to bring himself glory. And I know that kind of sounds self-centeredness, that God is bringing himself glory. And we just talked about a king who is, you know, we, we talked uh, about of like he's all about himself. Now, what if God bringing himself glory, does that seem self-centeredness? Does that seem like he's showing off? I would say no, because rather when God brings himself glory, it's because when he is glorified that he reveals who he, who he is to humanity. It's when he is glorified that people can actually know and see who God is. And by doing so, they can know him and be in a right relationship with him. So when it says God desires to glorify himself or we need to bring God glory, it's not that God's self-centered. It's, it's because we want people to know who God is. So I'm going I'm to let you think about and answer the question of how God is active in Esther chapter 1 in your small groups as we kind of ask this question, can God still be active in Persia? How is that relevant in chapter 1? But for now, as, as we close, I, I want you to think about how God is active where you are tonight, where you are in your life. Because the reality is, is if you're in public school, which many of you are, some of you are, the majority of students that go to public school actually don't profess or live out their profession that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord of, the, of them. The majority don't. They just don't. And the reality, for those maybe who aren't public school or, uh, or homeschool or go to a private school, the reality is that we all live in a sinful and broken world. We see the effects of sin around us no matter what school we go to, what sports we're involved in, what clubs we do, what activities we're involved with, everyone is affected by sin because sin affects everyone in the world, whether it's your families, maybe it's at school, on a sports team. Even here, the reality is, is that sin affects everything that we do and who we encounter. And so sometimes it can be hard to see God being active where you're at in central Illinois. It can be hard to see God maybe at, at times at work in our communities. 
our state of Illinois, or even our country of the USA. But I want to encourage you as we close that God is still very much active. God is still sovereign like he was in over Persia, and he's in control even when it seems dark and hopeless. God is still active. If you refocus, take the attention off of you and your wants, and look at your life through what the Bible says, you will see God being active. You'll see God being active right where you are in your life today. Let's pray. God, thank you for tonight. Thank you for uh, this book of Esther, God, that we can study it. And in this intro passage, God, we see just the result of sin and what a, a life not living for you looks like. It's all centered on self. God, I just pray that we would see that, that we would say no to that. God, that we would say yes to living to you. We would say yes to living a life that glorifies you instead of ourselves. And that, God, that we would see you active in our lives. Even when it's hard, even when a lot of things distract us from you, God, I pray that we would slow our hearts down, slow our lives down, and see where you are in our lives. God, you are real, you are active, you are in control, and you are moving. God, you are all around. So, God, I pray that we would see you at work. In, in us personally, and in the lives of others. Help us to have a small group time that reflects about your word and who you are and how you love us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.